Welcome to All Things Beer, a Pat's Pints Mark's Mugs podcast. I'm Pat Woodward. And I'm Mark Richards. Each month, we are joined by brewers, enthusiasts, and friends to explore the techniques, the culture, and the history of mankind's best invention. So grab a beer and join us as we discover a world of all things beer. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. We're back again and ready for part two of the history of IPA, Pat. I had a great time on part one, Mark, covering the first two centuries of the IPA, and I'm looking forward to part two. We should probably remind everyone of our guest, Nick Smith, owner, head brewer of Steam Machine Brewing in the UK, Newton Acliffe, a real great guy that knows a lot about the IPA. And it's going to be real interesting to hear him talk about the modern IPA from the British perspective. You know, we didn't get to have a lot of beers last episode because they are all in his side of the pond. Yeah, I think we're evening things up a little bit in part two. So without further ado, crack these beers. <laughs> it's about time, I think. Oh, that's the sound of a beer being opened in the U.S. of A. That sounds like a bottle yeah. of beer. Yeah, we're allowed to join the party now. This is great. <laughs> Sorry, I do apologize. What? It was very selfish of me. I do apologize. <laughs> Gentlemen, I enjoy that beer. Following on my end, but Mark and I did go out and snag uh, a six-pack of the Sierra Nevada 40th Anniversary Hoppy Anniversary Ale. Which oh, I see what they- they've done there. Hoppy anniversary. Hoppy anniversary. So the, the idea of this is it's meant to be something that would be similar to what they released in 1980. We were talking about beers getting paler. It, it does have kind of that amber coloration to it, which kind of goes back to the idea that in American IPAs, of which breweries like Sierra Nevada were really the trendsetters, a little bit of caramel or crystal malts in the malt bill would have been very common, right? Definitely. And I would say the caramel malt bill has been dialed back significantly from what it would have been when Sierra Nevada started. Well, I'm sure that the malt selection back in those days would have been minimal. I would say the year I started brewing was 96. And almost all of my recipes involved some certain love a bond of crystal malt in some capacity, depending on the style, to give it some more rich character. It seems quite inappropriate to use them now to lend that richness. There's a lot of character in today's malts. They've come a long way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that's interesting. Not like most British brewers. Islets brew from American homebrew forums and American YouTube videos and American homebrew books. That was how Islets brew. And so, you know, the same. I I guess I would have been, at the time, very heavy-handed in crystal malts and caramalts where it is now. I'm coming around to the fact that, you know, with a superior pale malt and using, you know, wonderful heritage varieties of pale malt, that you really don't need them in there at all. Um, yeah. You're you're right, like Sierra Nevada, that amber colour of their beers, you know, that I would have remembered from a good 15 years ago, certainly would have been quite heavy in the crystal. Yeah, absolutely. The other day, Mark, you and I were talking about, like, what were the really early incarnations of this American style of IPA. 
if you're going to pick anyone, I might pick Sierra Nevada. Sierra Nevada started in 1980. This is a 40th anniversary beer, so that goes back to those days. You know, you could say that what happened there changed the whole world of brewing. There is a little debate on who maybe used the three letters, not so much anymore meaning India Pale Ale as much as an American IPA. I don't know that those three letters mean anything other than a hoppy beer at this point. I concur, Mark. I absolutely concur. Sierra Nevada, you know, I mean, obviously they were way at the forefront in making some interesting beer and definitely beer with more flavor. Anchor Liberty IPA, which actually was just Liberty Ale at that point. That is, uh, I think, kind of up for debate. A lot of sites point to that one in 75, but I don't think it was and to this day is not called an IPA, although it is now. And I think there's some debate over whether that beer started as something in the vein of an IPA. I think traditional lore would be that Liberty IPA might have been the earliest West Coast IPA. Although I was reading, and I shared it with both of you, Jeff Allworth's blog, Bervana blog, talking about this. And really, although Liberty Ale dates to 1975... The beer that they brewed in 1975 apparently was more a porter than anything else. And, and it really didn't evolve into what became an IPA or a, a hoppy pale beer until 82 or 83. Yeah, definitely. And Sierra Nevada and Anchor really introduced the uh, Cascade Hop to probably both of our palates, Pat. Um, yes. Historically. Another one in 83, I've read that Burt Grant's uh, Yakima Brewing and Malting Company was the first to use the moniker IPA in the U.S. And I think that also could be up for debate. But into the 90s, you know, it was getting a little more recognized even on the East Coast with Harpoon, Harpoon. IPA, Brooklyn's East IPA, all respectable IPAs to this day. It's interesting yeah. that you talk about that difference between the West Coast and the East Coast. I think when people talk about that these days, there seems to be a very difference to what there was when I was first learning how to homebrew, when people talk about East Coast IPAs and West Coast IPAs. When we're talking about back then, in the dawn of the IPAs, what were we talking about, about an East Coast IPA? What was an East Coast IPA? It was very similar, but I think think the origination of that because of the ability to grow hops in the Pacific Northwest being so prevalent that a lot of those hops came from there no matter where in the U.S. you were brewing. You know, I don't think really in that time would I say that a Harpoon IPA or a Brooklyn IPA was that much different than what was being brewed as an IPA in the West Coast? I don't think in in the 80s that was, or 90s that was a thing. Do you, Pat? No, probably not at that time. I think if you go a little bit later into the 2000s, and maybe this was a little bit influenced by Dogfish Head, but I do remember a time when what that meant to me was the East Coast IPA was going to be a little bit maltier and the West Coast IPA was going to be a little bit more dry and because it was more dry it would probably have a little bit more perceived bitterness i don't know if that brings true to what 
Yeah, that, definitely. And I do seem to remember, like, I know Goose, we talk about more breweries, which are gone now. Gone and sold out, dead. Rest in peace. <laughs> yeah. Goose Island IPA, when that was first being imported to the UK, and I remember reading that it was kind of, like, inspired more by the historical kind of British IPA. I do believe they had a British hop in there and they used a British yeast and they used more crystal malts. It was certainly more of like an ambery colour compared to the West Coast IPAs I remember of the 2000s, um, which were, like you say, paler, crisper, more bitter. I mean, it should be said that the yeast that Sierra Nevada uses, which now we just call Chico yeast from Chico, California, where they're located, it yeah. is a very neutral yeast, right? And, and very neutral and attenuative, yeah. yeah. So I think the yeast would be probably the biggest difference between, in the old days, the East Coast-West Coast debate. I do seem to remember reading that more of the East Coast IPAs at the time, they were using a British ale yeast that produces some more kind of fruity esters, isn't quite as attenuative as the Chico strain. Um, so, yeah, you, I think you may well be right. It could very well be in the yeast. Yeah, I think that makes good sense. And East Coast IPA certainly in this age, and we'll touch on that later, is vastly different than what we know as a West Coast IPA. I think it's quite sad, really. I kind of like, do you miss the kind of East Coast IPAs of the early thousands and the late 90s? Um, I was just in Boston in autumn just last year. I went to Harpoon, and man, their IPA, it just tastes like going home and <laughs> still is, it's just so good. I love the Harpoon IPA. That's a classic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was one of the first American IPAs I had. I actually, I think of the three of us as the only one who lived on the West Coast. And, you know, I lived in Oregon from 1991 to 1996. And, you know, when I was getting ready for this podcast, I started thinking about, well, was this the nirvana of IPAs? Mm -hmm. And because, well, Mark mentioned it earlier that most of the hops in the U.S., especially in that time, were grown either in the Yakima Valley in Washington or the Willamette Valley in Oregon. And really, of course, that could be part of the reason why IPAs, you know, kind of had some prominence in the West Coast, because that was just the local ingredient. But mm -hmm. when I lived in Oregon in the 90s, IPAs were not dominant. I was just trying to think back what beers was I, you know, drinking back then. And the beers that came to mind were Shakespeare Stout by Rogue, Black Butte Porter by Deschutes, Bridgeport. So Bridgeport was the first brewery in Oregon to make an IPA. But when I lived there, I was drinking something that they called Blue Heron Ale, which really was, I looked up the stats on it, 25 IBU and uh, quite a bit of crystal malt. So... Maybe something in the idea of a British pale. Vidmer yeah. was making what we would now call an American wheat beer that they called a Hefeweizen. Bridgeport's IPA, which was the first in Oregon, didn't actually come out till 1996. Yeah. Mm. So, that, you know, actually the way we remember things and the way things were. I mean, IPAs used to be not a really common style. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's a shame to see Bridgeport close, too, in the recent couple of years. It probably... What, two years yeah. ago, Pat? Uh, I think that's about right. Maybe a year and a half ago. Yeah, yeah Bridgeport Close is sad. That's news to me. That's quite yeah. Sad. Well, thanks for telling me that. I'm pleased what? you mentioned Rogue, actually. I completely forgot about Rogue. So the breeze that we had over here that were imported, that inspired me. 
you know, out of the hundreds of breweries of America, the only handful get imported and get importation contracts and things. And some of them lose out and disappear. And Rogue, I guess I don't see Rogue at all over here at all. And um, I used to drink a lot of Rogue beers when I could find them. They're very expensive, far more expensive than I'm sure you'd pay for them over there. <laughs> it was always a rare treat to find, you know, a seasonal Rogue IPA, such as Yellow Snow or something like that. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. One of the things I will say about Rogue Brewery, one of them is that they've always kind of relied on a pretty wide distribution, like across the U.S. and, in fact, in many other parts of the world. They probably don't sell as much now as they used to. But one of the things they do now that is very cool is they have a pretty big farm in the Willamette Valley, right in Independence, Oregon, which is like the heart of the hop yards there. That's right. And do they, they grow, grow their own malts as well? Yeah, they do. In another part of Oregon, they grow their own malts, they grow their own hops, they do a lot of interesting things. So from that perspective, I think that is actually very forward looking, but -hmm. they're a different brewery than they would have been in the 1990s. Yeah, Yeah, you don't see them around as much now here in Ohio, but you do see them occasionally. I know Hans and I cloned a couple of rogue beers early on in our homebrewing forays. I think I did too. Now I think about it. Yes, I did. So actually, the next beer I'm drinking is, um, let me get the right glass. I brewed this beer um, inspired by those older East Coast we were talking about as like New England IPAs. And for me, like the East Coast, like we were talking about, was more ambery colored, had that British yeast but had the American hop quality but we've taken some of the grist we used oats and wheat to try get some of the haze so kind of like I wouldn't say happy medium I kind of nod towards the hazy New England and that's what I'm drinking now it's called take me back to lazy days nice we used a British ale yeast for this we used a London ESB yeast to get the under attenuation to leave plenty of sweetness behind okay and a lot of the pale malt we use for this is a malt I've started using quite a lot called Chevalier, which is a heritage malt, which kind of um, a pale malt that produces kind of marmalade flavors. And I find it really interesting with the hops, the especially like American tropical fruit and piney hops to have that kind of marmalade quality from the malt. I think it melds really well together. Oh, man, I can taste it now. <laughs> it sounds lovely. Yeah, I did notice when I was over there that sometimes I would have a beer that had that kind of marmalade quality. And I always thought it came from maybe some of the hops, but I I was probably wrong. Do you think it comes from the malt? I think probably both. Chevalier was brought back from the dead. It used to be the most common malt, pale malt, used in Europe in the 1800s. And our maltster, Chris, brought it back from the dead from a handful of seeds over a period of 10 years. I do find if you use a whole of it for a whole grist as we did for kind of like strong English bitter it's quite overpowering but just add some malt complexity that you can't achieve through the crystal malts or the caramalts it gives something still dry but just completely not grainy I say the best way I can say it is either grassy and marmalady and yeah so you could be right Pat you know there could be a certain element of that in British pale malts as well now, Nick, what hops are you pairing along with that malt? I'm pleased you asked that. Certainly there was citra in there. There was some mosaic. And I think we use green bullet, which is a New Zealand hop. That yes. Uh, lime zest, if you use correctly. And I believe it was those three hops. Certainly the citra. 
Yeah. There might have also been a touch of Amarillo to sub out one of the other hops because I didn't quite have enough, which, you know, occasionally happens, doesn't it? We've just about got ourselves up to the 21st century, and really it's only in the 21st century when IPAs became such a dominant force in craft brewing. But I see that my glass is empty, so I'm going to open another beer. Oh, what are you drinking, Pop? Mark and I are drinking a beer called White Raja, which is made Mm. by the Brew Kettle up in Strongsville, Ohio. The name is kind of a nice nod to what we talked about earlier in the show when i first drank this beer i mean i wish i could erase my memory so i could go back to how (laughs) mind-blowing it was when i first had this beer and how fruity it was it just kind of blew my mind it looks actually very much like the sierra nevada hoppy anniversary ale we just had the brew kettle has always been a little bit cagey about what hops they use but uh I'm going to guess this is uh, Centennial, Simcoe, Citra, Cascade kind of hops. But I don't know. Do you know, Mark? I I will say that the beer is 6.8% ABV and 70 IBU. And 70 IBU used to be relatively normal for an IPA, but I think not so normal these days. No, they've dropped right off the scale now. So does it have a nice bitter backbone to it? I've got to wait for the head to die down a little bit. It does. Yeah. It, <laughs> you know it's there. You know it's bitter. But it does have a smooth finish. It's not one to where there's a cloying sweetness from the uh, sugars from the malt, so it's fairly dry. It does have kind of a smooth, bitter finish, I would say. Yeah, I get, I mean, all of those traditional West Coast citrus and then kind of with the new wave of West Coast hops and where you get that kind of tropical fruit. Um, flavor? Certainly there was a time, I mean, I think one of the things that happened when the IPAs really surged to dominance in the U.S. was almost an arms race between the malts and the hops. I mean, the malts were all pale, but there always was, you know, some sweetness there that had to be, I mean, you got to have some sweetness if you're going to put frickin' 70, 80, 100 IBUs into a beer, right? Yes. Uh, Yeah. So I it, think I, I, I noticed that very early on, like when I was picking up American IPAs, I was like, where does that sweetness come from? How do they how do they how do these magicians get that into their brewing? What do you guys remember of the sort of IPAs that really when we go beyond into like let's say the second generation of craft IPAs that really made an impression on you? I had a friend who was really into stone beers, and I, he used to spend a lot of money on imported stone beers. And I remember they they were so probably doubly so compared to in America. They they were something that were very special to us to be able to get a stone beer, and I remember them being a taste sensation. I think when you talk about a bitter beer, like even to this day, I think. Sometimes stone, that's my memory of them, is these are really bitter. You need a light beer in between every two to kind of uh, reset the palate because because they were aggressively bitter. There was you a could big chew on them. I think for a while, you know, everything was just over the top on how puckering you could make 
a bitter IPA. And that's kind of what I know as just at the turn of the 21st century. That's what I remember the most is everybody just trying to throw more and more hops into the boil where it's very different than what we try to achieve today to really tease out the more subtle flavors in late editions. But in that time, it was just so much hops into the boil and the IBUs were just off the charts. And the, the oh. unfortunate part of that is that it did tend to gain a kind of earwax kind of flavor, unfortunately, as well. <laughs> yeah, that's, I've not eaten a lot of earwax in my time, and yeah, I'll have yeah, to trust you, you on that. <laughs> <laughs> but I could see what you say. I would imagine it could be quite bitter. It was a friend who pointed it out to me. It was a girl, actually. She went, oh, they all I don't like IPAs. They all taste like earwax. And I'm like... What you want about? You're talking nonsense. I was like, oh no, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, hey, yeah. Or dandelion leaves. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely that period of time. I sometimes refer to it as the era of the IBU wars. I mean, mm -hmm. you mentioned Stone, and of course, Stone had Ruination IPA. You know, a lot of Stone's whole marketing was like, yeah, our beer is way too intense for you to even drink. You That's shouldn't right. even try it. Yeah which was kind of clever, of course, but it was really trying to say we're, we're not trying to make balance beer at all. We're trying to make beer that is so extreme. You know, if you don't like it, of course, because you're just not smart enough to like our beer yet. Yeah, it was yeah. almost like a dare at that point. Absolutely. Yeah. That was kind of the trend, to make it bigger, 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 and more and more bitter. And they used to lie, didn't they? Well, not lie, but they said, this has a thousand IBUs in this beer. And it's like, well, your taste perception, Pat, I'm sure you'll correct me, is it like your taste perception only goes to like 90 or 100 anyway. And of course, there's about three or four different ways of calculating the IBUs in a beer anyway. So it was all a gimmick, really, wasn't it? Yeah, I would agree. I, yeah, completely. I think that the thousand IBU beer might have been McKellar. I think that. you're right. And I think you're right, Nick, that we can only perceive somewhere around 100 IBUs. And also as a chemist, I have to say, you know, there are limits to solubility of these things. I don't even yes. know. So when they said 1,000 IBUs, that's because you put it into your favorite calculator, calculator and it <laughs> yeah. says, oh, that's going to be 1,000 IBUs. <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit stupid, really. I mean, another one yes. in that vein would have been Green Flash's Palette Wrecker. And there were a variety of beers where they were just trying to go for the most extreme thing. But that did run its course, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And I think it, it ran its course, but not really until the advent of uh, New England IPAs that started emerging. And suddenly, people didn't want bitter anymore. They wanted soft, they wanted creamy, they wanted fruity. And so dawned the new era of the IPA. Nick, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what your perception of IPAs were, let's say, in the aughts from the British point of view. Did this idea of these kind of stone beers we were just talking about, did that develop in Britain on its own or did that come from America and then influence people there? The latter, I think, but it wasn't really until maybe 2012, 2013 when we had Brewdog, which I know are over in your state as well. It's it's debatable what they've done for the British brewing scene, but sometimes they're very gimmicky and clever marketing in a business, and sometimes, to be honest, they just get on all of our tits and we just don't want them to drink their beer. But uh, 
you know, like them or love them, they're here, so I guess we'll let them have this. Uh, um, that sounds about They right. followed the same ilk of the IBU wars, and it was like, they had jackhammer, jackhammer, hundreds of IBUs, it will smash you in your freaking face, jackhammer! <laughs> it was just like, it was a bit gimmicky and things. The one that stood out for me at the time in, in, in Britain that was following the American scene was a brewery that we looked up to at the time, who, again, have been bought out now. Shame. Rest in peace. Is Magic Rock who were down in Huddersfield, just in Yorkshire, which is just yeah. south of the northeast, and they were one of the first breweries in the UK doing a West Coast IPA. And, was that um, Human Cannonball? It was. So they had a few different ones. They had Cannonball, Human Cannonball, and Unhuman Cannonball, and it kind of like increased with ABV the higher up you got. I've met the owner, the ex-owner, I should say of um, Magic Rocket a few times, a lovely gentleman called Richard Burhouse, and we've had some nice talks about brewing and the kind of things which have influenced both of us. And that was the one which, on the home scene, as it were, for me, that really stood out. I was like, yeah, this is what I was looking for. This is, this is the beer I want to make. Okay, well, I think it's time to move into the next segment of the show. We're going to come right up to the modern day. We're going to talk about the ways that IPAs have mutated and spread since the West Coast, East Coast thing we were talking about earlier. And uh, we're going to start with an IPA from really kind of the pioneers in Ohio of the hazy style, and that would be hoof-hearted. And this beer is kind of appropriate for the time. It's called All Together, and oh. the idea of it, if I understand correctly, came out of Other Half Brewing, which is in Brooklyn, New York. And then breweries all around the world, really, can do variations on a theme of this basic recipe. So let's get into it. Yeah, time to crack one. Well, yeah. I mean, the aroma right away tells you that you're in 2020. It's just fruity, dank. Oh, it's gorgeous, really. Yeah, it's kind of uh, pineapple and overripe mango is mostly what I get from this. That's a good way to put it. Overripe mango. Hmm. It just sounds horrible, and I don't mean it to, but that slight kind of putrescent kind of fruity aroma but in a good way and i mean i i love that personally and definitely haze is evident but also you know not so in a way that you can't see a candle through it It, i mean it stops well short of the chicken soup look Uh, (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's heavily translucent that's the way i would put it oh this is good so hoof-hearted is here in town and they're very well known for Hazy IPAs, Nick, in our city. Pretty good. Pretty good. Well sought after. They're kind of one of those breweries that everybody gets in line for their four packs when they release them. And yeah. They're nice yeah. people. Yeah, that's, good folks at Hoof Hearted. For me, that's important when I drink a beer. I want to know that it's been made by someone with care and kindness in their soul. Well, these guys started literally in a barn. I mean, like the early days of Hoof Hearted, they were brewing in a barn. Hoof-hearted barn. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Their early flagship, although you don't see it anymore, really, was uh, called Musk of the Minotaur. 
and a hat, you know, Minotaur flatulating, you know, that was the uh, the cover of it. So, do you know you you sent me like a lot of stickers? <laughs> I'm sure like some of the stuff you're referencing were on these stickers. <laughs> like, there's no other reason I'd have seen a small Ohio brewery with a Minotaur <laughs> farting. It has to be. Now, from the brewing perspective, what's the difference between making a hazy IPA and making a West Coast IPA? Well, who's going to go first? I think you should, Nick, because you're the guest. But obviously, getting a lot of proteins in there that'll keep that haze. Yeast selection and some of the haze comes from the hop as well. Yeah. But I would start um, with oats. Yeah, for us, it, it's very oat-heavy. Oats, wheat, and the yeast selection as well. When we make hazy IPAs, we like to use... Well, uh, to be honest, we've used a lot of strains of uh, yeast to make hazy IPAs, including Hefeweizen yeast, actually. But we have used New England strains, and... We've recently settled on using uh, like traditional British ale strains along with the heavy-hitting big fruity hops along with a lot of oats. We use a lot of torrified oats alongside uh, malted oats. We find the torrified oats help with mashing out so that we don't get a stuck mash. Um, but the torrified oats also add to the protein in the haze of the beer as well. On yeast selection, actually, I think what's known here in the States is like the London Ale 3. Yeah, we use like a London Ale yeast for sure um, quite often. I have used, um, it's like dreaded amongst brewers for its uh, fermentation pattern is that there's a Lallemans New England yeast, actually. We've used it with brilliant results. It's a dry yeast. It produces such wonderful fruity esters as it's fermenting post-fermentation. It gives off wonderful kind of like mango and pineapple and does result in a haze. But a lot of people like despise it because it's expensive. It has big pitching rates and it can have a big lag period. But if you're patient with it, we found it makes some wonderful beers. Ah, it sounds great. I mean, those are exactly the characteristics that you're going for anyway in this style. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the things when we've been talking about what's the difference in brewing between the West Coast IPA and the hazy IPA, I mean, yeast is a big part of it because we were talking about how clean and flocculent the Chico strain is. And so that Mm -hmm. was like, that was a California way of making it. You want a yeast that is not contributing any flavor and drops out crystal clear, which is the exact opposite of what you're trying to do with these hazy IPAs. It might also be a good time to throw in the sort of North Atlantic connection here in that I think everybody kind of agrees that the origin of the hazy IPA style probably goes to Hetty Topper in Vermont, who uses a strain they call Conan, which Conan. is supposedly mm-hmm. then comes from the Boddington strain. So really, these hazy IPAs are really going back to the British East tradition. I mean, do I understand that correctly? I mean, that's my understanding, which is also interesting. So the Boddington's yeast is also the one that we talked about, Cloudwater, before. It's my understanding that Cloudwater used the Boddington's yeast a lot um, as their house yeast. Sadly, Boddington's is one of those breweries also bought out by the conglomerates, right? For my lifetime, Boddington's beer is a kind of washed out 
English bitter served on draft after being sterile, triple filtered, um, mm. tasting of metal and cream. It's not something to boast about if you use something from them. A bit like, you know, we have John Smith's over here. I don't know what your equivalent is of that. You probably, do you have an English bitter cask, sterile filtered English bitter for the mass market over there? No, and actually, if we did, I'd probably be drinking it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Only in fondness of being back in the UK. I Yeah, we don't just, it doesn't even exist here. So in England, it's still probably the most drunk beer is a keg kind of equivalent of a cast beer that's been sterile filtered, as well as um, a light lager, as well as a like sterile stout like Guinness. You know, those three are the mainstay of any pub on keg. Um, all sterile, all filtered, just as a side point. So regionally you have different areas will have their own favourite sterile filtered English bitter on cream flowing keg, the same as like Stout Fawcett. So in Yorkshire it's very much Tetley's, in the northeast mm-hmm. it's very much Cameron's or, you know, in Newcastle's Exhibition. Where in Manchester it's Boddington's. And each region has their own family brewer who makes their own sterile awful tasting cream with a bit of beer tasting kegged beer which is the reason that kegged beer had such a bad reputation in british brewing amongst beer lovers until the the advent of the craft beer revolution really because it had just been bad beer put into kegs um rather than good beer being put into kegs it's like all all character had been stripped out of it really hadn't it yeah, absolutely. So, sorry, I do digress. So, back to the New England IPA. Yes, and yeah. um, obviously the other main difference is the hops and the usage of the hops. Zero or very little boil hops, all in a late charge or, you know, whirlpool edition and a dry hop. And the hop selection, rather than going for, like, the resinous kind of my favourite kind of hops, the resinous kind of bitter kind of hops going for, as we were talking before, as you were describing that beautiful sounding beer, you kind of like big tropical fruity hops from all over the world, from New Zealand varieties, Australian varieties, but mainly your big kind of American varieties. On the topic of hops, which hops do you think were the biggest game changers? We talked earlier a little bit about Citra. I think Citra... Mm -hmm was a total game changer when it came to the taste of IPAs. What are some other hops that you think really opened the doors to things you couldn't do before they exist? For me, Simcoe. Simcoe was the first big American hop I ever used as a home brewer, and I remember opening that packet. And if I had a desert island hop, it would be Simcoe. Just amazing. What about you, Mark? I'll have to say, and I know I'm going to piss off our token Canadian to the podcast, but I think Mosaic is a big game changer, especially, I know for him, it probably gets down to that cattiness in it and that dankness, but Mm. Mosaic, I think you add Mosaic and pair it with anything, it's going to boost that level a lot. Yeah, I agree. I like Mosaic hops a lot, but I I do find that it can be a divisive hop. Not everybody likes it. I I love Mosaic, but um, I do notice a lot of people get like the onion kind of like aromas and flavors from it, which is interesting. Have either of you read For the Love of Hops? Yes, I've read that book. Stan Hieronymus, Um, right? That's the one. The fascinating chapter for me was flavor and taste perception and mapping it in the human brain and about 
how like some of the most common hops that males perceive as wonderful, like Centennial, the majority of females will get tomato and things like that. And it's just like how diverse our taste buds are and how diverse our brain is at mapping those flavors. And it makes it very subjective, doesn't it? It's, you know, you think of all those subtle kind of um, wine tasters who were talking about minor, tiny subtleties. And, oh, yes, I get red currants, I get jam, oh, I get gooseberry from this one. It's just like when we talk about beer, we're not usually talking about subtleties, are we? We're talking about great big bold flavors introduced my hops. Yeah. And, it, and so it's kind of wild to think that we're talking about like, oh, yeah, mosaic. Oh, I'm getting blueberry from that. I'm, I'm getting watermelon. And then someone else is like, no, I get onion. And you're like... Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you're getting onion? What? Is, you, is your palate torn deaf? And it's just like, it's just not. It's just the way we perceive those uh, those flavours and aromas. It's absolutely fascinating, I think. Yeah, and hey, you mentioned blueberries. I think mosaic carries a lot of blueberry in it. Yeah, you know. I, I, I personally get the watermelon... Um, mm-hmm. I get the watermelon a lot. I get and I get green tropical fruit, like I get guava and things like that. So not like overripe, like we talked about, like overripe mango. I get the kind of green tropical fruit, the nearly ripe tropical fruit from mosaic, and I think it is a wonderful hop. I do love it. It kind of speaks to the way that everybody perceives it. It's almost like you would perceive beauty, which is totally subjective, right? And uh, it's almost like hops present themselves to people in that same way. Yeah, absolutely. That's very deep and philosophical. I like where you're going with it. <laughs> now, let's go like south of the equator for a moment. What about a uh, hop like Nelson Savant? So we talk about divisive and flavors, um, and here's one for you. Uh, nearly every Nelson Salvin beer I've ever had, I get cheese. What kind yeah, of Nelson cheese? Sav- well, I don't, not I don't know the kind I of one cheese, in beer. But- <laughs> it is a very divisive hop i also have had nelson beers that i didn't like at all and some that i like quite a bit and i, I that right there puzzles me but yeah it is a divisive hop i think i i get it in chardonnay as well chardonnay wine i get like a kind of very um i get get this kind of like cheesy kind of flavor which you know if you're having a cheese and wine party so be it Okay, I'm eating cheese, I'm drinking wine. Who cares what combination it comes in? Um, but uh, yeah, I kind of, so whatever it is in that, 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 because people say like Nelson Salvin does give that white wine, Chardonnay, Sauvignon kind of characteristic. Um, so whatever it is, I, I, for me, in, in my brain, it interprets it as a very cheesy, at the worst scale, kind of Parmesan y kind of smell on a beer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, other Southern Hemisphere hops, New Zealand hops. I think Matoika is a fantastic hop Yeah, that really just captures the citrus, that peel that you want in your gin and tonic type of aroma that I think the is... The beer that I'm drinking right now is loaded with that hop. And yeah, yeah. Matoika is so nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. What about Galaxy? That's a fantastic hop. It's a beautiful hop. Australian hop. Kind of hard to get a hold of sometimes, though. Yeah. Um, so one company has, a, in the Europe, it, I think it's the Bathhouse Group, I think, own that hop. 
And so they're in charge of the trademark and the, the distribution of that hop because they are also the same ones who own Vic Secret, which is also a wonderful hop, an uh, Australian mm -hmm. hop. You know, and, and tropical, but in a different way than Citra is tropical. Do you guys think there maybe are too many hops? I know that's a crazy thing to say, but sometimes I wonder, like, well, I don't know if I can... What is the difference between Yukonot I and Denali and so forth? I think yeah. sometimes people read too much into what hops are in a beer. I think, you know, people like recognize oh yeah i like citra i'll drink that beer it's got citra oh yeah i like mosaic i'll drink that beer it's got mosaic whereas actually it's us as brewers it's our skill to produce a combination of flavors from the hops we selection and you know personally from the brewing we do i quite often create a cocktail of hops from different hops i like to mix because there is like a hop synergy effect that you don't necessarily get these individual flavors that people think you get and pick yeah. out that in the finished product and where these hops are used, that, that you get these wonderful flavors and aromas which are complex and so full of these various um, essential oils from these different hops that you get you get fantastic beers. And I think sometimes if people read too much into it because of what the hops are there, it, that that's the only thing that concerns me as a brewer, that people will think people just read too much into it. Yeah, and it is kind of, I mean, it's about the blend anyway, because so many hops complement other hops in different ways. And I think, Pat, yeah. a good way to look at it is kind of like the color spectrum when you when yeah. you have blue and red and it makes purple. I mean, some some colors go better to make a more cohesive, interesting thing. And I think hops are the same way. There are some hops that really complement and bring out the characters that you want from the hops next to them. And there are other hops that, you know, maybe, maybe are a mismatch. So I think there is a beauty in blending in the recipe of having, you know, three or four hop varieties to make that perfect marriage. I think the yeah. color spectrum is a good analogy because let's say you take your primary and secondary colors, you know, they're at six you can do a lot of things with six colors, but the world would be boring if everything had to be those six colors, right? So, you know, what we have now is the entire rainbow. Every point on the spectrum is filled by one hop or another. Now, a couple of mutations that we missed, Pat, because we didn't really talk about the black IPA or the... We Very short-lived Brute IPA. That's true. We haven't talked about those. The Black IPA or Cascadian Dark Ale, I think it's so close to being a hoppy porter. I mean... I've never tried one that couldn't be classed as, you say, like an export, an East India export stout, which yeah. are highly hopped stouts and porters, of which were at the birth of the IPA back to the beginning, which couldn't be classed as that. The only thing I would say that that maybe there is a distinction is that if you can make a beer that the aroma smells like a West Coast IPA, but the taste is like a hoppy porter, I might argue that's a different thing. And yeah. I think with the modern ingredients, you can do that. We produce a beer that we have on year on year is our like export India porter or export India stout. 
and we usually hop that with Simcoe and some other big hard-hitting hops. And that's not the hopping rates we're using are not unusual for a historic export porter. And anything that's hopped like an IPA, dry hopped like an IPA, smells like delicious, wonderful hops. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, I would argue that. It, that style already existed. It was just being reinvented, maybe, you know, and reclaimed or brought back to attention by some people from somewhere else. I think that's fair. And and also, it's a lot, it's a lot better name than uh, Black India Pale Ale. I mean, Black and Pale are, you know, they're uh, opposites, right? Yeah. That's true, but does IPA really mean India Pale Ale at this age? I don't think it does. I think it it means some hops in it. Yeah, absolutely. The Brute IPA, though, which just from the addition of enzymes to uh, get those sugars nicked down a bit further into smaller chains to make a drier beer, talk about a short-lived fat the thing about them is they accentuated the bitterness because they were so dry and um, most of them were kind of New England based, they were hazy fruity and things like that So, but but then because they were so dry they accentuated the bitterness, they were quite unpleasant and one of the things I found I don't know why but nearly all of them I tried had like a weird after smell of fart Like I found it quite unpleasant actually <laughs> I don't know why you would say that <laughs> so we made we made a brew IPA, but we didn't use the enzyme. I, Pat, you were there at the brewing of this, I do believe. I we think I remember that. Yeah, basically, it was a white grape IPA. We didn't approach it in the way other people had. Basically, I wanted to make a very dry IPA. We mashed in very low. This was a beer of around seven seven point five percent. We mashed in very low. We added sugar to the boil. We used like white grapey. We used Halatel Blanc. We used Mosaic. Basically, we fermented it with two yeast. We fermented it with USO5 and the very dry white wine yeast that wasn't a killer yeast so that they both attenuated out and it finished extremely dry. It finished like 01 or 001 or something. And it had this delicate white grape quality to it. And when it finished, it was a very sparkling, very thin, very dry beer that had gentle flavors of gooseberry, white grape, floral. When I was first reading about Brute IPAs, that's how I wanted them to taste. And because I'd never tried one, I set out to make one that was something that I wanted to drink rather than what people had done before me. So one style of IPA we haven't touched upon, actually is um, fruit IPAs. And I did want to talk about that because that's actually something we have produced quite a lot of. And fruit IPAs get a lot of hate in brewing circles, on brewing forums, of professional brewing forums, which I'm a member of. It's like, goddamn milkshake IPAs. Who wants to touch those? Just putting lactose of fruit in the beer and anyone wants to drink it. But even though, you know, I love all brewing traditions... What I do think is that at least some portion of the beer you produce should be accessible because beer is the drink of the people. And anything that allows more people to be able to engage in what you produce is surely a wonderful thing. 
um, we have people drinking the fruit IPAs that we make who are 50, 60 year old who have never drank beer in their life who all of a sudden love beer because they've tried something with fruit and lactose in it and it's kind of like a good gateway drug I think oh that's very eloquent the way you say that what gateway drug (laughs) (laughs) yeah all the stuff before that but yeah (laughs) (laughs) well I mean just like any other style of course you can make a good fruited IPA or you can make one that's uh ham-handed right you know what do you think, think are the think, keys to making a good fruited ipa i think it depends what you're going for i think there's three ways you can do it i think you can produce something that's sweet and sticky that is full of lactose with a little bit of fruit and quite a lot of dry hops which is is a novelty something you want to drink in a third or a half or something which appeals to those with a sweeter palate the middle of that is ones where the fruit complements the ipa itself So, you know, we all know that certain hops and things have various characteristics which can be complemented by fruit. And by the addition of those fruit, you accentuate the properties of the IPA. And uh, the thing is about fruit is fruit does tend to increase the tartness of a beer. So by back sweetening that with lactose, you can actually counteract that. And the third type is where you weigh in with um, a shitload of fruit. And they will quite often sour and those sour tones along with the hop fruity qualities will produce wonderful fruited IPA sours. And you've got these three different kind of fields of fruited IPAs as far as my experience, as far as I'm concerned. I think there's a place for all three of them, to be honest. Yeah, actually, that raises a couple of questions in my mind from a technical point of view. So one of the things I would say is, of course, Fruit itself is a little bit acidic, and you Mm -hmm. need that acidity to balance the sweetness, and there's a certain sweet spot, which, of course, fruit achieve perfectly. When you add fruit to the beer, do you worry about the yeast and bacteria that are on the skins of the fruit? Is there any pasteurization, or do you normally just add the fruit? I mean, there's purees. There's a lot of different ways to add fruit to a beer. What would you say is your approach to it? From a homebrew point of view, a long time-tested ways to freeze the fruit, use frozen purees. When I'm producing thousands of litres and you don't want to quite risk it, I tend to purchase aseptic purees, so purees which have been, you know, passed through a pasteurisation process, um, which we can then add to the beer. But um, you are then adding sugar to something which is fermenting. And I think in the early days of fruit IPAs, a lot of people were then packaging that and saying, drink this cold, drink this fresh before it referments and explodes on you, which I think is really um, irresponsible. And actually, you know, some of my earliest fermentation before beer was fruit wines and country wines. We have a wonderful tradition of that in the UK, of fermenting hedgerow fruit to produce things. And I really like the flavour of fermented fruit. And I think that flavour of fermented fruit becomes something different. Our process is we tend to add the fruit just before we dry hop. And then we will allow it a few days until the gravity is stable so that there will be some fermentation of the sugars from the fruit before it's packaged. In that kind of fruited IPA, how many days or weeks do you think it takes until from the fruit addition you can put it into a package? Not long because um, the sugars in fruit are extremely simple. That's true. It's just like sucrose and fructose. 
mainly fructose. And so it's usually in a few days you notice that the fermentation has stopped again. Then you can dry hop to complement those flavors of the fruit and then crash and package as per normal. Are there certain synergies between specific hops and specific fruits? Oh, absolutely. You know, Amarillo, we're against stone fruits. Brambling Cross, uh, Simcoe against dark fruits. You know, your Citra and your Mosaic and things like that against more tropical fruits. The Halatau Blanc against berries. Um, I think you've got to approach it as a, a chef would in a way, you know, your palate tasting and what you understand from what you've produced before. Um, and matching it with the fruit that you want to add and the, the, the flavor profile you want to achieve at the end. Yeah, that's the best way to say it too, to approach it as if you're a chef, because you are. Yeah, we're creating and our palate is science. So if we were to get into the crystal ball and look ahead to the future, I guess the question is that the IPA style has evolved so much over the past 40 years that where do you think it's going in the future, Nick? Oh, man, I have no idea. I mean, it's going to be exciting to find out. But, you know, we've talked about fads and fads we haven't even touched upon, like red IPAs. I think at some point the name associated with IPAs is going to have to break because the whole style is so diverse. Like we've said, it just means hops in beer. Now, I think we'll see more sour IPAs, but it could be something that is a fad and passes away. I think Haze is here to stay. I think Low Bitterness is here to stay. But personally, from a brewer, I would love to see the return of more West Coast IPAs because... I think that's where my heart truly lies. You know, you make a good point that the name sort of reminds me of when you go to Britain and people just talk about an ale. Yeah. Well, I think yeah, what is as an ale as, as being an ale, isn't it? Yeah, of course, absolutely. It's a you know, what is it? Who knows? Well, my glass is empty. Well, I think it's time to call it. I've topped up my double IPA. Did you say you just topped off your beer, Nick? I, I did, yes. Okay, well, how, on to chapter 11. Well, we just <laughs> we could just stop pretending this is a podcast. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, uh, that's fine with me. Well, it's been a wonderful rambling journey across the history of one of the most amazing beer styles that exists out there. I want to thank you so much, Nick, for spending time to come on the show across these transatlantic fiber optic cables you do not have to thank me for sharing a beer and talking about beer this is you know this is what i live for we're gonna have to have you back on my friend for some more uh podcasts down the road uh, i'm sure you can twist my arm yeah it'd be awesome to talk to you again and i can't wait until uh we're able to do an international flight so that we can come see you nick or vice versa Definitely, gentlemen. Let's make it happen. It's great talking to you, man. You too, buddy. Cheers. Thank you very much. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.